Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer, Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls, and guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on PodcastOne.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a challenging time for a lot of different reasons, and I thought it was appropriate to have a discussion about athletes, activism, and the modern world, and I fortunately had the perfect guest on my mind, and he had the time to say yes. Curtis Harris, who many of you know from the Hall of Fame podcast that we did over a month ago together, he is a historian and often focuses on the, the inter- like the intersections of sports, and so he had a great perspective on the topics that I thought were worth discussing right now. So the, about the first half of this conversation is our life experiences and the importance of listening and perspective and the, the evolving nature sometimes of history and what people's what people know from history. And then the second half is the history of athletes and activism in the United States, focusing more on the NBA, though we talk a little bit about other non-NBA moments in time and individuals. Um, But we really run through from the 1940s to the present day and talk about important people and examples and how the role of athlete as advocate has changed over that period of time. I I thought it was a really enlightening conversation, one that I'm extremely happy not only to have had in my own life, but to have in this space. And um, I know that there are some people who are looking for something different from podcasts right now. And if that's the way that you feel, I am not going to say, I'm not going to hold you down and say, you have to listen to this. But I, I, I think that, and I hope that it will, that it will help you think about things differently. And it definitely did that for me. 
podcast runs well over an hour. I think this one's closer to an hour 25 and is brought to you by BetOnline. Use that podcast one promo code for your sign-up bonus. And again, definitely a different podcast than a lot of the stuff that I do at Real GM Radio. And there will be plenty of time to discuss the upcoming and sort of already somewhat known news about the return to play and all that. Trust me, we'll talk about that. You can also listen to the pod I did with Jared Dubin. But this was timely. This was important, and I'm really, I'm really pleased with the conversation that came out of it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Sorry, <clears throat> just getting a drink of water. Whew. Yeah, it, necessary, appropriate, considering we have we have a lot to talk about, and I, I think it should be pretty obvious to people why I wanted to do to do this podcast. And I think after this, it'll be pretty obvious to people or people listen to the Hall of Fame pod that we did a, a few. I guess it was like a month ago, um, about why I wanted to have you on. And where I want to go before before getting into the history, and I want to spend some real time there, I, I think that there, something that has struck me, especially in the more modern era where it is so much easier for normal people to respond to those those who have prominence, who are voicing their support or opposition to specific things, a lot of times there's this statement of like, oh, what do you know, or why are you talking about this, stick to sports, whatever you want to go. And I, I think that it's worth taking a beat to just realize that there are reasons why that, like reasons why they do that. And there are a couple that I, I, I think are, are good to get into. But one of them is, you know, everybody has the freedom to say what they want, and they're doing just what anybody else would. Yeah. Um, you know, a- athletes are, you know, they're, they're similar and different to, you know, other people in society. Uh, like you said, everybody in the United States um, ha- has a First Amendment right to express themselves considering the government. Um, and athletes maybe at these days, you know, they may be richer, I mean, a lot richer uh, than the average American, but that doesn't mean they still don't observe what's going on or uh, have issues with American society. So uh, it should be unsurprising that they have opinions about what's happening. Right. And and I also think that athletes, you know, should they, they, they don't have to do anything, but should they feel the desire to do something to voice their opinion or whatever, they have, they have a, a, an unusual position within society, especially in the, uh, the sports that are dominated by minorities in this country, which is a lot of them, including the NBA, the one that you and I both spend most of our time focusing on, because a lot of people, not everybody, of course, but for, for a variety of societal reasons, which are too complicated to get into in this podcast, there is a group of people who are separated from, especially if we're talking about policing or some of these very specific issues, they're separated from that. That could be geographically, it could be just this practicality of their lives and who they interact with on a direct basis. And for some people, athletes are one of those bridges. They grew up in sometimes very different circumstances. They rose to fame through very different circumstances, and they live in very different circumstances. And so for some people, those athletes are a different channel to reach them and to potentially make them aware of of what is going on and potentially change their mind. Yeah, that, that, that's the potential uh, that athletes have. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, there's still the resistance to for people. And it, it's not even folks necessarily that, that don't uh, get exposed. They don't have the potential to be exposed to these kind of problems. Uh, it's just people who really don't want to be bothered with it, I would say. Because um, you have folks who, like, you know, in like major cities like Philadelphia or Chicago that obviously would know about uh, some of the problems with policing. But if an athlete uh, from one of those two cities, you know, speaks up about 
uh, you know, anything about police brutality or any other sort of social issue that's deemed controversial, you know, they can experience backlash. Uh, so it's, it, 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 yeah, it's not necessarily where the fan is located. Like if they're off in South Dakota or whatever, Utah or Idaho or Kansas, uh, sure, they can use geography as an excuse, but I think you have just as many, well, not just as many, but still a lot of people in Chicago or Philly to use those examples uh, who still don't want to listen to what an athlete has to say uh, about certain issues. Right, and and that's certainly the case in 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 in, circum, in some circumstances, and it it does get into this balancing act where there are people who see sports as a as a distraction, as a respite, as a place to kind of separate from the stresses of their day to day day to day lives, whether those relate to the topics that the protest that that protests or activism are about or not, and they they could be there are a lot a lot of reasons why somebody can be trying to escape elements of their lives. And this is something that comes into, like, I get comments about this all the time. But, but, and, and you can acknowledge that. I mean, people can engage in whatever they want on their own time for whatever reasons they want. But the attention paid also does give, give athletes an unusual platform. And as we said at the beginning, they can do whatever they want with that platform, though it will, the, as, as I, I talk about a lot, this is getting into my legal background, the First Amendment allows you to say what you want without, um, without consequences from the government. Private entities are their own thing. But it doesn't free you from consequences. And so that can sometimes be an important part of this story that I'm sure we're going to track through uh, the passage of time. Yeah, uh, and just one thing I think that a really good uh, statement uh, that I got from a former basketball player that kind of, I think really that sets the stage uh, for really this entire conversation. Uh, it, it kind of goes to what you just mentioned, too. Uh, when I, I was talking with Chet Walker, uh, who played for the Chicago Bulls and the Philadelphia 76ers uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Now, when I was talking to him a few years ago, he said that you know uh, black athletes in particular were viewed as um, – how do you first? He said, "Well, we we were accepted as athletes, but not as people." When he was talking about uh, society at large, but also fans of basketball back in that era, uh, that that quote always stuck with me. How he could feel that uh, you know people could uh, white people in particular could think of you as uh, an athlete, accept you as an athlete, and view you as you know whole in that aspect. But then once you get off the court, uh, you're you're less than a person. You're not accepted at that point. You're you're expected to kind of just go off and. Uh, be silent, be quiet. Uh, don't don't bother us until you get back on the basketball court. Then we want to we want to see and hear from you at that point again. Yeah, that that's powerful. And I mean, you can draw a pretty straight line from that sentiment to the more modern iteration of let's just say shut up and dribble. I mean, the there is always this element like it now that is more that is sometimes like shut up and dribble if you don't agree with me like there there is that it, it it's more rare to see somebody try to silence a person whatever their station if they if they happen to largely align on the topic that is being discussed but it is it is so so fascinating to me in a frustrating way for the most part how that is the like the shut up and dribble or stick to sports or whatever whatever line we want to use as the proxy for that 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 comes up when a lot of other people don't need a prerequisite don't need a justification to share their voice you know like that is that is not a yeah. there is there is not a a history degree or a political science degree or specific issue X degree that is a, a necessary requirement for 
having an individual talk about something, especially if it's something that involves their life experience. Yet, for whatever reason, <clears throat> it seems like that that pseudo requirement happens to be thrown onto athletes and entertainers more often than other individuals who are just sharing their opinion. You know, you get to the expertise thing that. Uh... As someone with a degree in history uh, and who has previously worked as a history tour guide, uh, I-, I can tell you that people will give their unqualified opinion um, on a number of things that uh, relate to history. And in particular, I did Civil War and slavery. Um, so, yeah, I- I've heard plenty of uneducated, ignorant opinions, uh, and they're just completely wrong, uh, not even just ignorant, but absolutely wrong opinions about uh, information about Civil War and slavery, and people will be like, well, you know, that's what my dad told me, or that's what my grandfather told me, or that's what I read on some obscure website. And it's like, well, you're looking at someone right in front of you, like me as a tour guide. Uh, I'm like, you know, you're looking at me. I'm someone who has studied this. Uh, and, like, not to wave a degree at somebody, because, like, you know, there's people with degrees that still, you know, have a bad time talking about issues. Absolutely. Uh, but it's like, uh, but it's like I, I, I've spent hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of my life uh, that can't be calculated. Um studying those issues and I, I try to come at it uh from a place of understanding that you know these folks don't study this stuff as much as i do so i expect them to make mistakes but oftentimes, oftentimes people just come in with an arrogant uh attitude and be like well you know this is what i think and therefore it's correct um and if you challenge or just even not even like directly challenge but just disturb uh kind of their background notion on something uh they, they get really upset um uh, angry sometimes, definitely defensive, and I think that exemplifies itself, or excuse me, um, exerts itself when uh, athletes start speaking up about issues. Because as informed or uninformed as an athlete may be on a particular subject, the fact that they just give an opinion uh, might upset somebody. Uh, but especially, I think if the athlete actually is informed on the topic, because uh, that just you know gets someone's dander up. You know, it's just you know. Who is this person that I expect to be good at basketball or football here to tell me about, uh, you know, racism or police brutality or economic problems uh, when I'm only expecting them to entertain me? I'm not I don't want to have them uh, disturb my worldview. And so I think that's why people have particular problems with athletes expressing opinions because they don't want to hear an opinion from an athlete. They expect, you know, that that particular thing from an athlete, not a political opinion. Yeah separating separating out the person and their you know their their contribution to the part to the thing that you care about i mean that that is a that is something yeah. that it, and it's and, it, and again it's it's so striking to me because we don't do that with a lot of other people and, and also like there are there are individuals who are given a platform and a form of let's call it pseudo expertise on topics that they don't they haven't actually studied that they're just kind of pun, more punditry than anything else yeah. and the the air of legitimacy is sometimes totally unearned and then sometimes earned and not given and i and especially what what really gets me and this is this ties in with what is currently going on you know going on in this country is that yes academic study can absolutely help i mean i went to I, I did a lot of public policy stuff when I was in college, and like it can help understand policing and understand police brutality. And there are there is there is work that has been done that can be done and studying that you can do. However, there is also value not only in listening to people who have direct life experience, but also vo- voicing what are more like I guess you could say moral 
feelings on this that it doesn't have to be about what you've studied or what you think you know. It can be listening to people who this is a part of their lives. And I've, I've long felt that that is an, and is an important part for me for situations especially that I don't have direct familiarity with to listen to those who do and get their perspective on it while understanding that there are a variety of views and that there that is important to is important to listen and understand and there's a lot of that that comes before knowing that I can defer and and, and understand that there that it's it's a far larger world than the world that I deal with. But on that front that that's I'm glad you brought that up cuz that uh, takes me back to my days again as a tour guy talking about slavery and all that, um, something that I would often tell people on those tours uh, would be that the I guess the, the, the professionalization or the expert, expertise and the credentialization uh, process that happened in the, in the United States uh, was used to really discredit a lot of the stories and experiences of people who had been slaves. Yes. Uh, and, and so I would tell them, like, people, you know, often ask me, you know, like, how do you know this? Which is a very valid question. Like, you should always ask somebody, like, how do you know what you're talking about? And uh, I would tell people, like, you know, obviously I read books from scholars, and I also read primary documents. And I said there's also these, um, uh, from, like, the 1880s and 1890s especially, a lot of former slaves had uh, been able to learn how to read. And so they uh, read and write, so they, made, they published their own uh, autobiographies in the 1930s. When some of these people were in their 80s and 90s, and some of them over 100, uh, workers from the federal government actually went out and conducted interviews with these people just to get their memories about having been slaves, you know, 70 years earlier. And historians at that time, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s, would just often discredit what those people had to say. And it, it often just boiled down to a simple like, well, you know, they're not an objective observer on slavery. And it's like, okay, we can't take the word of a person who had been a slave on what slavery was like because they weren't educated and also that, you know, they were basically too close to the experience. They, they hold a grudge against the slave owners in the, in the system, so we can't trust their opinion on it. And it's like, that that's absolutely absurd and ridiculous. When I would tell that to people on these tours, they would agree with me when I would, you know, tell them it, tell it to them that way. Uh, and then that, you know, that gets me thinking about what you just said, um, about how we need to have different... Um, Different types of, I guess, different types of knowledge and uh, experience on, on subjects brought to bear. Uh, because we, so with slavery, you got to talk to a slave about what it's like to be uh, talk about slavery. Uh, just like you got to talk to a slave owner, because the slave owner has a really messed up but still an important viewpoint on slavery. Because you got to understand why in the world they implement that system and why it lasted uh, so long. Yeah, yeah. So you know, to make it to shift it, you know, to a much less brutal system. Uh, just to talk about. Uh, our conversation last time about the Basketball Hall of Fame, uh, that's why I, I was talking with you. We both kind of agreed that it's really important to have, you know, different viewpoints on basketball to inform the decisions made about uh, made within the Hall of Fame. So, like, someone like me, for example, who studies basketball historically could have a, uh, an important viewpoint, but so does somebody like uh, Chet Walker, who I already mentioned. Uh, you know, he played basketball, so he has a different vantage point that's just as important. He can convey what it's like on the actual NBA basketball court and what's important out there. And then um, someone like yourself who's more of a media member, you can convey uh, aspects of basketball from that perspective. And then, you know, coaches and referees and on and on. So you're never going to get all the important information with just one single source of uh, or one single vantage point. you got to have all these different views uh, to get all the information and to get as complete a story as possible. 
uh, and as truthful a story as possible. And so to finally bring it to, you know, the issues we've been having recently with police brutality um, and what athletes have to say about that, you know, some of these guys, uh, you know, they grew up, as you said, in a pretty uh, bad economic situations, but majority of the NBA is black. And whether they grew up poor or grew up wealthy, uh, they still grew up black and they, just, they still have experiences about dealing with the police. Uh, that's really important for people to listen to. Uh, is it the entire story? No, but it's a hell of an important part of the story as to what policing is like in the United States. Uh, and just like a, a white athlete might say, well, I never had a problem with the police. And then a black athlete says, well, I did. Um, those are two really important parts of the story. It's like, why didn't a white athlete have a problem with the police? And why did the black athlete have a problem with the police? Uh, they don't discredit the other. It's going towards getting to the underlying issue as to what's happening out there and trying to figure out what the, why these discrepancies are happening. Well, and, and I think it, some of the stories that have come out recently and, and a, another big benefit of social media is that it is far easier to share this information and get it seen by, by, by people, at least people who are engaged on that platform. And so like two of the stories that stuck with me are the one from I can't I wish I could remember his name, who was riding with Raymond Felton while they were while they were in college uh, yeah. and uh, and Tori Hunter. The Tory Hunter story is not new. That was that that was reported by the L.A. Times because Tory Hunter told them at the time, but I had forgotten about it. And the idea that fame it can insulate it can insulate from certain consequences. Like I mean, there there the both of those stories could have been so much so much worse and in some ways so much more common. Sadly enough, if if they were if people involved were not famous, but you think about how that shifted and how things opened up because. Because they were, and then you realize, well, a vast majority of minorities in this country are not famous. They are not wealthy. They are not people that you would recognize from TV or that that you know that you interact with in your life. And then you think, yeah, how far it got to this point. And then for me, thinking back to, well, I'm most certainly not famous. I didn't grow up wealthy or famous or anything like that, and I never had any experiences remotely similar to this. And so then you start, like for me. I start to piece together, well, okay, well, you know, it's just the way I go through anything. It's like, well, what are what are the deciding factors? Well, maybe they, they lived in a different place. I mean, Torrey Hunter, that, that occurred when he was on the Angels. He was in, in the L.A. area at the time. The other one, I believe, was in North Carolina. And so it's like, okay, well, that's – I mean, I've lived in L.A., but there's different parts of the country and all that. And it's like, well, there is this big commonality and difference between those stories and, and mine, which is, which is skin color. And that is something that transcends wealth and – wealth and location sadly enough in, in this and so i think that that's why those stories are important they're not they're not any more or less important than so many of the other ones that are out there but it provides another lens and saying okay well you know it's the idea of control factors and 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 yeah. experimental factors it's like okay well they still got stopped they still got you know what's let's, let's call it detained and isn't necessarily sorry to get my lawyer speaking depending on the case but they still they suffered this massive inconvenience which sometimes gets a lot a hell of a lot worse than an inconvenience and that's the commonality and them sharing those stories is important yeah no and i'm glad you brought up like the the idea of basically these control factors or variables uh in these situations where you um you know, someone like, let's just pick LeBron James, like most, richest, most famous uh, athlete in the NBA. He's black. Um, and, he's, and he's been famous since he was 16 years old, let's say. I think that yeah, was when he was on the yeah, cover of SI. famous forever. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, he, you know, bad stuff still happened to him. Uh, that wouldn't happen to a white person of similar stature uh, because he's black. You know, so the wealth 
it is a bit of a shield. The, uh, the fame's a bit of a shield, but it's not an absolute uh, prevention on being, uh, you know, brutalized or mishandled by the police. Uh, so I think that's something that a lot of folks who just don't, uh, not only want to say study, but just don't really think through uh, these situations. So I think that's what, uh, to kind of give off what you said as well, uh, all these videos that we've been getting on social media really just strips bare a lot of what people have been talking about for so long. That, you know, we, we, real, we weren't doing much of anything to get, you know, brutalized by the police, but yet it still happened. And people are like, well, that, 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 that's, that's not my experience with the police. And it's like, well, why don't you just sit down and think about why that is? Uh, this also gets back to what I said about the black athlete versus the white athlete and their treatment. Um, like, just because, how, how to phrase this right? So all these different layers uh, that go into it don't stop the police from maybe interacting with you or don't stop you from having problems. But uh, they have the potential to further the problem. Uh, right. So, like, see, so like, there's, there's there's poor white people in America, or there's poor people in America. This this is where I'm getting at. So there's poor people in America, and oftentimes poor white people will say, well, you know what, my family started out poor, then we were able to slowly rise through society and get get opportunities. And a poor black family may not have been able to do the same thing. And you also have to tell people, like, well, just think through what advantages did you have? Yes, you were poor, but the advantage you had was also that you were white or maybe that you're also a man. Um, and that your certain region of the country might have had just you know, better economic uh, opportunities available through investment and all that. Uh, whereas a poor black family was like, well, they were poor, but also they were black. And maybe also uh, a poor black woman is going to have a harder time, too, uh, being able to work their way up through society. And so people need to just think through, like, all these different factors and variables that impact and influence. Um, so, like, and again, like, I've, I've talked to so many different kinds of people through being a tour guide, and these conversations would just go off on rails and tangents. And I've had people tell me, like, you know, well, I, I just never, you know, well, well, white people have problems, too. And I'm like, yeah, white people do have problems, but their problems aren't because they're white. And it's like, I think that's just what, I think just they breaks it down so simply, it kind of cuts through a lot of it. It's like, what problems has a white person had because they're white? Whereas with a black person, they've had problems because they're black, or a Native American person's had problems because they're Native American. Uh, and on and on and on. So, you know, the, the I hope this whole situation has allowed white people to really observe and think about uh, just what advantages and protections they've gotten uh, and, and things they just not have to think about because they were white. doesn't mean they've had a pain-free life. doesn't mean they've had a problem-free free life. But it does mean they've had to deal with less uh, pains and less problems than people in a similar circumstance uh, would have had to deal with if, 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 um, because they're not white. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, there is an uncomfortable reckoning that has to come that comes for people like me and i mean this came for me a long time ago but we all especially if we if we're happy or some level of satisfaction with the work that we have done to put our life where it is there is there's this idea and i i think this um i i thought about this in light of uh vic fangio who talked on uh, that was on tuesday about you know like kind of the idea of merit and and as other things it's like I firmly believe that he believes that it was, he like he has this job that is exceedingly hard to get, and he was worked hard his entire life. He's getting this opportunity. He's very excited for it, and you know I have plenty of those within my own life. And it is uncomfortable to acknowledge, much less admit, that one of the reasons, not the only one, far far from the only one for most people, that you succeeded was things that were completely outside of your control and benefits that you had that other people did not have. And for whatever reason, 
every once in a while you get people to acknowledge this for class and income reasons. Like, oh, you know, like, I, I for example, like people who, people, and I've been in this group who've gotten a job, maybe it's like a college job or something because of their parent. You know, like that is not an opportunity that everyone has. Like I got my, my summer job when I was in, when I was in high school and then early years of college. That was, you know, related to my dad had a connection for me. And then eventually I, they hired me back on my own merit. I actually even worked there longer than my dad did. But that was – but I got it in the first place because they knew him and he vouched for me. And they kind of – I guess they kind of thought like if I screwed up that he, he could face ramifications and all that. But that is a distinct advantage that I got by virtue of my specific circumstance. That one wasn't skin color related in all likelihood. But so many other things are. And it's not necessarily about. Sorry, go ahead. Also, say that that relates. Uh, you know, to bring it to you know sports again. You know, that relates to you know the problem of uh, general managers and coaches. Yes. Uh, in sports leagues, uh, that you know the, the network, so to call, uh, so to call it, it just it, it's it's so hard for. It's getting a little bit better in the NBA in the last decade, but prior to say like 2010, it was absolutely absurd and ridiculous and hard for for there to be a black coach in the NBA who had not also been a player in the NBA. Whereas uh, white coaches, I mean, you can go back, you know, to the 60s and 70s and find lots of white coaches in the NBA who had never played professional basketball, uh, let alone played in the NBA. Uh, but again, it's not until the last decade or so. Uh, and even then, it's still minuscule that you have black, uh, black coaches that weren't previously black players in the NBA. You know, then even even harder with the general manager ranks. Um, same same situation going on there. So, yeah, the 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 good old boy network. You know, just having somebody that's already been through the system to kind of get you in there uh, exists in sports. It exists in uh, like society at large, and you know, it exists in all kinds of ways. Like, you know, obviously, you know, uh, so black people are able to get other black people jobs in the business uh, because they have that you know maybe that familial or friend connection. But, like, if you're going in completely blind, so to speak, if you're white and you just have, like, a professional connection or, or a collegiate professional, like, I went to this college or I'm part of this uh, professional organization, you're able to get somebody to go to bat for you to kind of get you an in to interview for the job. Whereas if you're black, you don't have that institutional connection to get you in, get your foot in the door in the first place, let alone to try to get an interview and ultimately get the job. So, yeah, that, that's a problem in sports and across society. There's that is a great point, and I want to add to it another important wrinkle I've been thinking about a lot the last few days, and this is true in my field of media, and it's true in a lot in a lot of others, including coaching, which is in a lot of fields for a variety of reasons. Um, a lot of it being cost reduction. The early stages can and often are pseudo mandatory are unpaid or barely paid. And that's how yep. you build up a resume. That's how you get people to notice your work. There is yep. a large group of people of variety of races and, and of, of all genders and everything else who can't do that. However, it is not an equal or proportionate amount of people who cannot do that because of the income inequality and class, and class inequality that is pervasive within especially this country, but also in others. And so it creates this not only a cycle where it's the good old boys network where the, you, you have a more – it's more likely that you know somebody or that you went to the same school. But it's also that you have the capacity to do one of these jobs, like be an unpaid writer or an intern at a, at a newspaper or – be a you know like be a video person in certain degrees to on on a team on a job a job that can't sustain itself so maybe you 
live with your parents or maybe they just give you money to live. Well, that's not that's not a luxury that a lot of people have. And if that is an important foot in the door, that it, it is, it's not that all white people can do that and all non-white people cannot or anything silly like that. It is just another way that inequality persists because the because it changes your access to the gates. And if it changes your access to the gates, then it affects everything that comes from it. Yeah, absolutely. Plenty more to talk about with Curtis Harris, including going through the history of activism in the NBA and professional basketball at large. But first, a message from Bet Online. There's currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, and you might think that there's nothing to bet on, but you would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on, from their online casino to poker and blackjack as they bring the Vegas to you. Check it out on their website or through your mobile device, and make sure to use the, the promo code PODCAST1 for your sign-up bonus and to tell them, of course, that you came from us. So if it's missing the NFL, they're doing live day daily Madden NFL 20 simulations and NASCAR's back. There's entertainment betting, stock prices, weather, even Nathan's hot dog eating contest. And also, if you're an MMA fan, UFC 250 is coming up on June 7th. And if you listen at the very end of this podcast, you can hear former MMA star Chael Sonnen and Bet Online's Dave Mason talk all things UFT, UFC 250, including the latest betting lines. And whatever you're into at Bet Online, it's all open 24 hours a day and all online. So whether you're using your mobile device or visiting the website, use the Podcast One promo code to tell them that you came from us when you sign up for an account to get that welcome bonus and to tell them, of course, you came from us. So check out Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Uh, something else we're, we're, before we get into kind of some of the historical stuff, I, th- I think is worth worth talking about, and, and this I think should be pretty firmly in your wheelhouse conceptually, is the idea that we talked about, and you, I'm sure you experienced this as a tour guide, where people's life experiences and their perspectives are changed by what they have been educated on, whether that occurred in a classroom or not. And I happen to be the be, have a family of school teachers, so I think about things a lot in the school context. And there was a great example that came up during the last week of the the Tulsa race massacre in in 1921. It happened. It is you know it's there isn't there isn't there is a there is things or there are things that are in dispute about the scope and and some of that just be by nature of how things are reported. But it, for a lot of people, whether you are in Oklahoma or otherwise, it was not a part of the curriculum, and that's another form of gatekeeper that is ex- extremely important, which is there are stories for various reasons, whether it's unflattering or it fell by the wayside, like malicious and not malicious, that would affect the way that people think that we're not a part of their, that we're not a part of their education and thus did not in, inform their perspective. Yeah, that that is, you are a thousand, be stupid, you are a thousand percent correct, a hundred and ten percent correct on me uh, having experienced that, that kind of stuff, being a tour guide. Uh, oh, geez. So just, just to relive some of the more fun experiences of my life, uh, when I'll tell people that the Civil War was about slavery, you get, oh, it, 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 it's better nowadays. So like nine out of ten times, you get people to be like, yeah, they, yeah, they're not their heads, like, yeah, of course, that's true. Uh, now, they don't know just how deeply how true that is, but they know that that's true. Then you still get some people that be like, well, no, it was, you know, just, it was the states' rights. That was like the 9, 9% would be like, no, 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 it was states' rights. But they'd be like, Ugh, states' rights to do what? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, states don't. States' right to, you know, keep slaves. Uh, but then you get like that 1% that just absolutely fights you like tooth and nail. You'd be on the mat with like a knife out trying to <laughs> fight for your life with these people. Um 
And I was like, okay, I, eventually I'll learn, like, I can't just sit here and tell people, trust me, I've read this, believe me. It's like I got to come, come at them with actual historical documentation to refute the years of schooling, uh, the years that their dad and granddad told them this story, uh, or just the community they grew up in might have a Confederate statue uh, in the downtown. So, like, they just grow up steeped in this stuff. And so I would go and drag out, like, uh, Mississippi's Declaration of Secession, where they said unequivocally, you know, our cause is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. And it's like, what the hell else do I got to tell you if Mississippi itself, in uh, January 1861, when they seceded, said our cause is identified thoroughly with the institution of slavery? It's like... You can stop arguing with me. Now you get to argue with the state of Mississippi in 1861. Like, if you want to still be the fool and do that, fine, I, I can't stop you, but that's the information. Uh, and then also, when I would show this quote uh, from a Confederate about white supremacy and how he said that, you know, that the Negro is not equal to the white man and that his, nat- his natural position is insubordination, enslavement to the white man. And I would show that to people, like even the folks who said that slavery was the cause of the war, just like had never thought how deeply, like, you know, how deeply that meant, uh, like how just how, how thoroughly it ingrained that kind of mentality was in the United States. Because uh, like they, they had never stopped to really think about it. Like they knew it, but they never really thought through like just all the ramifications of having a system like slavery and all that, that it took to justify it. Uh, so now what I think, you know, to, again, to bring it back to what's happening now, I think what people are getting with these police videos is, yeah, folks kind of understood and accepted that, you know, generally black people get treated worse by the police, but they might have tried to make some justifications for it. Like, well, you know, maybe the black person didn't follow police orders 100 percent, or uh, maybe the cop was feeling threatened with their life because the guy might have done something. It was a misunderstanding. And it's like, no, there's no misunderstanding. There's no threat. It's just the cops are acting out of control. there's, just, there's nothing a black person could have done differently in a lot of these situations or most of these situations to change uh, what the cop was going to do. The cop was just, just uh, determined to go out there and cause some trouble, no matter what the other person on the other side of the situation was going to do. Um, and so dealing with these uh, educational problems that people have um, can, o- can only be solved, I think, through getting them to think through every step of a process and also just showing them, you know, kind of the raw documentation, whether it's the videos on Twitter right now or way back in the day, you know, these dusty old documents from the 1860s. And just have them look at that and try to grapple with it themselves because there's, there's only so much having somebody else tell you is going to do. Like at some point you need to look at it yourself and think through uh, what, what you're going to do with it. Are you going to continue to refute it, ignore it, uh, uh, poo-poo it, excuse it, try to decide to find to justify it, or are you going to acknowledge the truth and come to grips about what it really means for yourself and for this country? Yeah, and a, a phrase that I've used a few times, and it kind of sounds it sounds a little bit self-serving or, or, or arrogant, but I don't, I don't mean it that way, because there are times that I am on the other side of it. it is, as I say this to people when they're kind of talking about certain things in sports. It's like, all you see is not all there is. And the example that I want to use is I'll go to a basketball one, which is I wrote yep. this piece a few years ago about KJ McDaniels and Jeremy Grant. And they signed, they were drafted the same year by Sam Hankey and the Sixers. And McDaniels did not sign the, the Hankey special, the four-year deal that had no guarantees after the first year. And Jeremy Grant did. And so I wrote this piece about how, like, KJ McDaniels betting on himself, even though he's out of the league now, that it made him more money. And I, I didn't say, like, he made the right decision, though I, that is largely the way I, I feel. And I had people 
uh, respond. They're like, well, look at all the, the playing time that Jeremy Grant got and, and KJ McDaniels didn't. And so it was like, you know, that they were invested. I'm like, yeah, but they had plenty of opportunity to evaluate. They had all this practice time. They had mini camps and training camps and in season and work with coaches on the sides before games and everything. And it's, so it, it got, it gets reduced sometimes to like playing time because that is what fans can see. And it's the same thing for me. Like there, I know that when a team is deciding who to sign or deciding who to keep as their 15th man on roster, there are parts of it that I know I can look up their true shooting. I can look up their physical measurements. I can watch their film, but there are whether it's character or it's the how they do in drills or how well they pick up the material, how well they get along with their teammates. There are there is so much that goes into various decisions and various things that happens that is outside of our direct knowledge. And I think so there are two things you could do. One of them is understand that and come to grips with it. And that doesn't necessarily mean the people who made the decisions, even with more information, made the right ones. There are times that happens all the time. Yep. But also understanding that you that that you uh, that understanding what you don't know is inc- is incredibly valuable. And so there was this there's been this conversation that has needed to happen that's basically just like, yeah, this isn't your experience, but your experience is not necessarily and in many cases directly not representative. Yep. Uh, one of the important things I learned in uh, doing my, my master's degree, uh, like I kind of knew it already, but it really hit home when I was doing my master's degree was just the idea of, you know, knowing what you don't know and being willing to acknowledge that you don't know everything and that it's okay to be like, hey, I don't know the answer to this. And that kind of frees you uh, to not go walk around and, you know, there's a certain kind of weight, actually, uh, with trying to pretend like you know everything because it's so, it's so stressful. It, I, I, I used to I used to be one of those people who 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 would always try to like act and try to BS my way through it. And I found like once I realized that I didn't have to do that, I, I just became so much less stressed out. I mean, there are plenty of other yeah. reasons to be stressed out, but that one, like for me, that was a, a, a transformational change. Yeah. No, just be like, you know what? I, I know what I know, but also I don't know everything. So uh, like, you know, myself personally, as you, you can tell through our conversation thus far, like, I know a lot about the Civil War. I know a lot about slavery. I know a lot about Reconstruction. I know a lot about uh, NBA basketball history. I don't know a lot about physics. I don't know a lot about uh, mathematics uh, outside of applying it to NBA basketball. So, like, I'm not going to walk around and try to convince people, like, hey, take my opinion and my statement on everything as the gospel truth, because, like, I haven't studied everything. and even the stuff I have studied, I've studied it enough to realize, like, there's still some uh, some holes to fill. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of information that we just don't know. Like, you brought up with the, the players on the Sixers roster. You know, it's like, we, we got a lot of info on them. You may know a lot about them. This A lot's not everything. Uh, a lot's not 100%, so there's still gaps to fill in there. And I, I think people would be better off if they could admit to themselves that, you know, we don't know everything, even if you might even know a lot about a certain topic, but, and, and that's okay. Uh, the important thing, I think, is for people to to try to fill in those gaps, try to uh, add to their knowledge and um, listen to what other people have to say, what their expertise is, uh, whether that expertise is by the book, uh, you know, professionally educated, or whether that expertise is they saw it with their own eyes, they lived it, uh, but, but, but be willing to exchange that info. So, so uh, don't believe that your one experience or your one way of getting that info is the only way, the only um, facet of a situation that matters. 
Right. And there is there is such value in being able to incorporate new information and adjust accordingly. I, I, I attribute that for myself and I'm far, far, far from perfect. But law school, like uh, that's that's in law, like one of there are two important things in law school that that that, that I think are, are really useful to people, and I wish it had been taught like in, in a critical thinking earlier in my life because I yeah. think it would have just made well, me better at living. Go well, ahead. It needs to be taught in, like it needs to be taught middle and high school, honestly, right? Because like you know, you know, you know, like I said, I didn't get it, and like in a real deep level till graduate school. You didn't get it till law school. It's like, well, right. how many how many people go get a bachelor's degree or a law degree? Like that needs to happen in middle and high school. Exactly. And so for me, that was the, the big things were being able to include and acknowledge facts that run against your argument. And so, so that's you know, so if it, like in a in a legal brief. If you know something, like let's say, or, or no, let's let's say an argument. If you know something that is, let's use a criminal trial because that's what more people have have more knowledge of. If you know something that is that looks bad for your client, it is better to share it and put perspective on it than to have the other side, assuming they know it, just bring it out and be like, "This is what they didn't tell you." Like you should think about the way that people. It's like, oh well, they were trying to pull the wool over my eyes. They were trying to lie. You get more control over the circumstance. Even if by sharing the negative stuff, whereas a lot of times when arguing in other circumstances, it's like whitewashing that or hiding it or obscuring it completely. And and then the other one is like this is where I was getting at before is realizing that the I mean the values we have are largely our values, but that our analysis and, and our interpretations of circumstances cha- can change and, and ideally should with new information. And there is this big stigma. I come at this from the world of politics, which I used to work in, and very interconnected with the city in which you live. That it's like, oh, babe, that, bless your heart for working in politics. Yeah, that that this there's this <laughs> there's this villainization for people who change their opinions, and yeah, there are certain times where it's like, yeah, you shouldn't have been you shouldn't have been where you were, and the flip flopper labels and all that. But there is also merit, like it in say like in, but also you have to say it the right way of like, I used to feel this way, I learned these things, and my opinion changed. And that is, it's not something that should be vilified. Other, you know, like obviously there are certain things where you want to be like, yeah, you should have been with us in the first place. Like there, there are moral things where you shouldn't need to know or get that life experience or anything else. But there are a lot of things where it's like, yeah, like I, I wish I had been there, but I just, I needed to, you know, grow as a person, learn more, and experience different things. And that is, it, it's, it, it's hard to, it's hard to do, it's hard to accept, and it's hard to come to grips with the idea that parts of parts of what you believe is a strong word, but parts of what you think are going to change with time. It also makes you sometimes when you look back at your own stuff, like my own writing, you're like, oh, man, I was a total douche, or various other things. But it also, like, have, maintaining that approach, what I found is that it makes me more patient with other people, except when people don't do that. Then I'm less patient with them, but hopefully that maybe pushes people in the right direction eventually. Well, well, this is where the art of persuasion comes in. Uh, you, you try to, I, I think the best way, I mean, you don't try to get somebody to change their mind. You, you just try to present them information and hopefully they will change their mind. Right. Uh, but I think it's important for folks uh, listening uh, to just realize that, you know, all of us will change our minds on a topic, hopefully, uh, because you would hope, that, like you said, if you get more information, you just, you know, make better decisions and it will just give you more perspective on, on life and uh, subjects. But the change is rarely going to be 180 degrees in one day. Right. Uh, 
And that was, again, like, I think this is where my tour guide experience, that, that's probably the most impactful thing that's happened to me as an adult was just doing that for, like, you know, six or seven years and talking to well over 100,000 people from all over the world, like, just about it got civil war and slavery, too. So, like, just the conversations that happened. Um, but, you know, I was frustrated uh, during the early parts of that. Uh, and I, I was still get frustrated, obviously, later on, like, just you have your good days and bad days. But... I'll be particularly frustrated in the early parts of that uh, when I would have my, as I, as I saw it, my unimpeachable facts, my well-presented tour. I spoke clearly and plainly, and how could somebody not agree with what I said? And then uh, my supervisor, she was like, well, you know, it's like maybe you did make an impact on them, but it's just not going to really come to fruition for another month or maybe two months. But if you if you did speak cleanly, uh, clearly, uh, <laughs> ironic, uh, if you did present unimpeachable facts, if you did do a good job, uh, maybe the person was a little bit antagonistic in the moment, but that antagonism towards you might have really been the antagonism toward these ideas disturbing uh, the, the, these thoughts they've had all their life. And now that they've realized it's something they've been thinking and accepted for all their life is, isn't as true as they thought it was. And it might take a while for them to come to grips with that. And so that's why I think that I try to give a little bit of grace to people when it comes to, you know, police brutality. Uh, some, not a lot, but some grace with it. Uh, where it's like, okay, they, they may be acting out like just like your regular American sitting at home watching this stuff. Um, maybe they're not going to be like, oh, my God, like, I now hate the police. They're the worst thing in the world. Uh, they're like, that's not going to happen. Uh, but maybe over the course of a year, two years, three years, they slowly begin to realize and open up and accept that, you know, there are some changes that need to happen. And, and honestly, I think that has happened over the last six years since, uh, like, the stuff in Ferguson happened. Like, I, I think the reaction that we're getting right now to the current spate of police violence is much different than it was six years ago with Ferguson. Uh, and I think it's because we've had that five, six-year period for a lot of people to kind of just soak in what's been happening and allow for themselves to have their minds changed uh, and not, not change their beliefs, but change how they act upon their beliefs and how they see the world. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true, and that is, that is encouraging. I mean, I, w- I wish things moved in a, in, a, in a faster direction, but I think that's also— Oh, I, I sure do, too. That, that's, a good, that's a good lead-in, even though it won't necessarily be the most encouraging conversation in, in that respect. Yeah. To, going, to going back to the 60s, I know that is a, a time period that, that you know well and that is important for the athletes and activism conversation, both in the NBA and not, and I'm not limiting this just to the NBA. But uh, I wanted you to, to just open the floor. I'll ask clarifying questions, but to kind of set, to set that table a little bit for, for where, where things were then and, and we can kind of get into where, where they've gone since. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, you know, this is oh God. We, we historians are a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> to, to start in the 1960s, you got to start in the late 1940s. <laughs> you always have a damn prologue. Uh, so, like, if you look at black athletes in the 40s, and I, I, not even the late mid 1940s, is World War II. That, that's kind of like the the jump start of all this, because uh, you had like a lot of black athletes who later become much more famous, like uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, who served in the U.S. military during World War II. And and just your everyday regular uh, black American, 
you know, it, it's, the, it's called the Double V campaign. Victory in Europe over fascism, fascism, and then victory at home over racism. Because black Americans were like, well, you know what? If, you're, if we're going to get drafted and go overseas to fight Hitler, um, if when we get home, why shouldn't we destroy this racist edifice that we have in the United States as well? And um, that really was the breeding ground for the civil rights movement and then uh, the af- athletes protesting as well uh, during the 50s and 60s. But uh, during the late 40s and the 50s, the, the you know the black athletes that integrated baseball, football, basketball, uh, really kept a much lower profile than the guys in the '60s would because a lot of them thought of it as, thought of themselves rightfully so as kind of the pioneers. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't they, they couldn't mess it up for guys in the future. So uh, it's a great quote uh, from Earl, Earl Lloyd, uh, who's the first black player to, to actually play in an NBA game. Uh, he said that he admired Jackie Robinson, but he said Jackie had to do it all by himself. Jackie was the only black baseball player in MLB uh, the year he integrated. Whereas in the NBA, you had four black players the first year that they allowed black people in the league. So Earl was the first to play in the game, but he had three other black players with him that, yeah. that first season. So, Earl, But Earl was like, you know, I had the benefit of having other guys to kind of share the load. But also, basketball, we're all together on the court at the same time. So uh, if I wanted to take revenge against a white player I thought was doing something to me because I was black, I could throw a little elbow and nobody might see it. Whereas with Jackie, he was all alone on the baseball field. Like, you could see everything that he was doing. He was out on his own. Um, figuratively, because, like, you know, he's out there on the baseball field. And uh, literally, because there's no other black person in the league at that point. Uh, but all of them were like, we can't retaliate in an open fashion. We can't protest in an open fashion because, you know, this experiment might get ended. Yeah. Because if you're talking like 1947, 1950, the civil rights movement is still in its infancy. There's no laws that have changed in a big way to help out black people. Whereas if you fast forward to, say, 1965, you've had 10 years after the Montgomery bus boycott, after Rosa Parks did her thing, uh, after NLK got famous. Uh, you've had the March on Washington. You've had the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. So you've had significant, enormous legislation that had gone through. And the black athletes are, you know, as black Americans in society at large, are much more open about their, their feelings and their politics and what they think is wrong with the United States. Uh, and so that's kind of the how you set the stage for the 60s, to help, uh, how just outspoken athletes were at that point. Yeah, and so then, so, I mean, so at that point, they the athletes feel more comfortable sharing their voice, they, and also they're, as you said, the I think the the legislative part working alongside of it that helps that helps give you know it, it's a different conversation, and there it feels like there's more you know momentum, I guess you could say, going in that direction. Though it's not, yeah. it's in fits and starts, and it's not perfect and, yeah. and everything else. But it's you know it's and then and then you know then that leads into the the late '60s and the early '70s. Yeah, it, well, before we get to the late 60s and early 70s, um, the first, it just, I'll try to keep it to the NBA for the most part, but you I know, mean, the you first. Can go wherever you want. Yeah, 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 but, uh, I mean, it's just for my own, my own sake, too. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't want to start getting too far afield. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the NBA, like in the, by the late 50s, um, that's when you began to have, well, first off, by the late fit, by, let's just say 1960, you finally had a black player on every team in the NBA. Yeah. So that, that was a big milestone. Um, and then also, God, I need to remember my research, uh, but I think by 1964, I think that was the first all-star game where the majority of NBA all-stars were black. So it wasn't just you're getting more black players in the league, but the stars of the league were now becoming predominantly black. 
And so that, that, was, that was beginning to afford black athletes in the NBA, not only the fact that you have greater numbers, but also you're more important players to the league. And that means, of course, you're making more money as well. Uh, so they have more protection and be able to speak out. Whereas 10 years earlier, even 1954, 1955, you still only had, you know, no more than two black players on any one team. And there had only been one, maybe two black all-stars total at that point in NBA history. Yeah. Whereas in 64, like in that, that one single all-star game, I think you had 10 or 11 black all-stars. So, and, and these all-stars are Oscar Robertson, Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, these are all guys who had done something in their own ways, but had done something to kind of combat racism in the United States. So these weren't just the best players uh, making a lot of money, but these were the best players making a lot of money who had spoken out in some fashion against racism. So uh, Elgin Baylor had his famous, um, his refusal to play in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, in a neutral side game. Yeah. Because uh, the, the, the hotel wouldn't let him stay with the white teammates with the Minneapolis Lakers. So he was right. like, well, if I can't stay here, then I'm not going to play in the game. Like, that, that, yeah, that doesn't make any damn sense. So uh, there was that situation. Uh, Bill Russell, I mean, too many things to name with him. But uh, he, like, he and Will Chamberlain grew facial hair. And that in and of itself was, was, was caused trouble. Because to have facial hair, people thought of you as like a beatnik or a communist. So the fact that they came in and were, had a mustache and a goatee, people were like, oh, my God, what, what are they doing out there? It's like, okay, this is what the era is. Grow, having, having a goatee is causing trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they, they did more serious things than that, but that's just to show you just how, just, uh, just uh, how, how little it took to cause it. Yeah, yeah. Fervor. Yeah. And, and then you had Oscar, uh, who by 64, and I think in 65 is when he became president of the, of of the, the players' union. union in the NBA. Uh, and, so, and, of course, he was from Indianapolis and had gone to college in Cincinnati, so he had dealt with racism uh, all throughout his early life. And uh, when he became head of the players' union, he made the union uh, much more militant, but it was already gearing up towards that. So uh, Tommy Heinsohn, uh, what happened to previous president of the union, he's the one that instigated the, the threatened strike of the 64 All-Star game. And then the next year, uh, Heinsohn's like, all right, who's, who's going to be the best guy to lead the players' union? And he decided that it was going to be Oscar Robertson. And I think that shows you where the NBA was at that point, where the white leader of the union decided that this black player was going to be the best leader to succeed him in the players' union. Yeah, and that's and a really Oscar important took, decision, too. Yeah, it is. And like, this is mid-60s, so like, this is the same year the Voting Rights Act had passed, if you're talking 65. So... You know, it, it wasn't that common to have a black leader of a union uh, in the United States, let alone uh, an interracial union, which the NBA union was. So uh, that in and of itself was an important statement from the players of the NBA that they would put their trust into a black player to lead them uh, to, to what they wanted in their labor rights and free agency and pensions uh, going forward. So that, that was an important step with Oscar taking the lead there. Uh, getting into the late 60s, uh, Bill Russell uh, had already published his autobiography, his first autobiography, and he and that he was upfront about everything he thought was wrong with the United States. And uh, Russell, in fact, criticized uh, the civil rights movement for being too timid uh, in his first autobiography. Uh, he, he said that when he went to the march on Washington in 1963, that uh, he was like, it, it was too much kumbaya, basically. It was like too many people holding hands and singing songs, not doing enough um, yelling and protesting. Uh, he thought it was just one giant picnic. Yeah. So Bill Russell actually actually was unsatisfied with the Marshall Washington. So that shows you how, uh, uh, I guess, radical he was at that point. 
Um, but by the late 60s, you, you, this is when you start to transition from what's called the civil rights movement to more of the black power movement, um, and so which was accelerated when MLK got assassinated in 68. And uh, that, that caused one of the bigger stirs with the NBA players uh, because the, the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals, I think, was the day after MLK got assassinated, and the league still made the guys play the game, mm. and the players were upset about it. Um, but yeah, that, that gives you yeah that that just gives you a sense. Let me stop there for a moment. That just gives you a sense as to what world these guys were operating in. Where yeah, I I, I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. You know, this is me me get my my facts faith. Uh, oh no, but I, I'm not. I don't know this era nearly as yeah. well as you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I want to double check myself. I can't remember exactly whether they made the players play that game or they postponed it. I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, but n- nonetheless, let me just pause there while I look it up, and I'll keep talking about this other stuff that was going on. So just pause by 68. Uh, you have this – the NBA is now majority black. The number of players in the league – or excuse me, the all-stars in the league are majority black. Uh, the head of the union is black. And these are players who have grown up oftentimes in the South or in urban areas where they experienced segregation, they experienced police brutality. So for them to speak up about what was happening wasn't necessarily going out on a limb at this point. They had they had grown up essentially with the civil rights movement. I know that's weird to think about it, but think about an NBA player like, uh, let's say somebody like Dave Bing. In 1968, I think that was the second year in the NBA. So Dave Bing's like 23, 24 years old. Flashback to when he was a teenager. That means that when he was like 13 years old, that would have been the mid-1950s. And so he would have seen, you know, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, uh, you know, really escalating the civil rights movement. Right. And then during, during his time in college, he would have seen, you know, the Civil Rights Act getting passed. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson helping out with that, protesters forcing the federal government to make these actions and seeing the Freedom Riders and the sit-ins. And so at that point, these young players, these young black players in the NBA by the late 60s, they had grown up with a really militant society that had been pushing for civil rights. So it's not shocking that then they would come into the NBA and not be afraid to speak their mind about what was going on. And so it's not surprising that the players' union got more militant by that point, uh, that athletes across the United States were getting more militant. Of course, you also have the backdrop of the Vietnam War, too, by this point. Uh, so even the white athletes, a lot of them were getting uh, upset with what was going on uh, with, the, with the war effort there. Uh, so I think that's important context, that a lot of what these guys were doing then wasn't necessarily extraordinary for that time. It was really a matter of survival for those guys. Like, for them to get treated fairly and equally in American society, they had to speak up in this fashion. Right. Um, so I know we, we venerate them as heroes to a certain degree, uh, which I think, I think we should, because, you know, no matter how it happens, they still spoke up and spoke out they did. about what was going on. Uh, but realized the circumstances they were in really pushed them more than it did a lot of people in other eras to really speak out about what was happening. Yeah, especially, I, I would say, especially later. Whereas, it, it, I mean, the, the pressure's changed, I guess would probably be a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and here we go. So, again, a historian, i got to be a stickler about my details. I don't want people later on to get mad that I got a date wrong. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be mad at myself, too. So, yeah, here, here's the details. Uh, MLK got assassinated April 4th, 1968. Uh, game one of the Eastern Conference Finals was April 5th, and so they played that game the very next day. And players in the Celtics and 76ers on both sides really didn't want to play in that game, but the, uh, the Celtics players, they took a vote, and they decided that, okay, as a team, we're going to come together and like we'll play this game, but we've talked it over as a team. And it's important to remember that Bill Russell was also the coach of the Celtics at that point. Yes. He was player coach. So... 
that you can't deny that that importance there. Whereas with the 76ers, it was more top down. Uh, and, and it wasn't out of malice, but their head coach, Alex Hannum, was like, well, guys, you know, we're, we're ready to play tonight. And that just set a tone where the players were like, you know, we're not ready to play. Or maybe we are willing to play, but we need to first sit down and talk about it for like an hour or two and kind of get our feelings out there as to how we feel about the situation. Uh, but Alex Hannum, again, I don't, I don't think he was being malicious in the least bit. Like, he was a really nice man, a uh, really great guy. Um, and this is, I guess this gets toward the problem of uh, that white people have dealing with race. Uh, Hannum was personally nice to black people. Um, Wilt Will Chamberlain loved him. His, his All his players loved him. But they, they kind of think he made a mistake that day when he came in and said, like, you know, we're going to play this game. And he just expected, like, you know, this is, this is a, a sad day, but we still got to play basketball. And they didn't really talk over uh, the impact that MLK had on their lives mm-hmm. uh, just, just the day after he had been killed. So, uh, so, yeah, I think that really gives you a sense, again, as to really what these guys are going through. Uh, you know, imagine playing a basketball game the day after, you know, the most important American at that point had been murdered. And you, you, there were riots across the country, and, like, serious riots, like not just – uh, marches, but like you think protests right now are bad, like those 68 rides, like he had oh, cities man. burning, and yeah, like that, that was some really awful stuff. Um, so yeah, that, that I guess that's a, that's a good point there to kind of now take it to other sports with the 68 Olympics. Uh, but um, right, I got any, any thoughts or clarifications you, I think you need uh, from that? No, I, I, I think that I think it's I, I'm happy that you provided the context, and I think I think that is a good it's kind of a good calibration of you know how how the different leadership approaches and and obviously Russell's gravity within that Celtics locker room which he you know was his, his role as a as a coach at that time and of course as a legendary player. Yeah. Yeah, so that's April of 68 and of course uh Celtics Sixers they go to seven games. Celtics barely beat them 100 to 96. It's a terrible day in Philly sports history. Uh, but that fall because it was the summer olympics but they were held in the early fall in mexico city uh this is really important uh because at this point you know the black athletes you know they're pretty pissed off yeah you know mlk just got assassinated and he had like a lot of them say this like and he was the one that was preaching nonviolence, and they right. still shot him so a lot of them weren't having it so uh kareem abdul jabbar refused to participate with the men's olympic basketball team uh, a lot of other players boycotted uh the, the olympic team um, but the, that part of the Olympics there that I really liked the most uh, was John uh, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Peter Norman. Uh, they're they're standing on the on the, the podium after the uh, the track relay that they ran. Yeah, and so and forgive me, track athletes, track fans. I'm terrible with the specifics on track track athletics. Uh, but whatever race they won, uh, the two Americans they got the gold and the bronze. Uh, Peter Norman got the silver medal, and all three of them are on the podium. And that's when Smith and Carlos raised their, their gloved fists, you know, the Black Power salute as the American Anthem plays. And they caught hell for what they did. And it's probably you know, one of the three most famous photos involving, you know, athlete protests uh, in American history, if, if not the most famous. Actually, it's probably the most famous. I think one. it's the most famous. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe Colin Kaepernick with his knee overtakes them one day, but right now they're most famous. Uh, but... I was always I, I, I was always fascinated with Peter Norman because he he's the white guy on the podium from Australia, and I dug into his story and it's like this guy was no joke either. And like he also caught hell for what he did. Uh, and I I, did, I, I talked to uh, high school students about this uh, maybe two times a year because um, if you look closely at that photograph, all three of those athletes have these big white patches on their jackets, and that white patch was for the. Uh, I forget the official name, but it's essentially it was like the the Olympic movement for human rights, 
And uh, Peter Norman was a part of that. He supported it. So he had that white patch on his jacket uh, for Australia. And uh, according to Smith and Carlos, uh, that both of them intended to wear black gloves on both of their fists. But uh, I forget which one, but one of them forgot their gloves uh, before they got up to the podium. And so they're like, well, maybe we got to ditch the protest because they're both going to have, again, like I said, four gloves total, four hands. Every, every hand's going to have a fist, uh, black glove on it, excuse me. But Peter Norman told him, well, you know, you, you guys still have a pair of gloves, so why don't you just split it? And that's why if you look at them as they raise their fists, one guy has a black glove on his right hand, yeah, the other guy has a black left. glove on his, on his left hand. Yeah, and that's why you're like, huh, you don't really think about that. So you think that clearly they're splitting a pair of gloves. And Peter Norman suggested that they do that. And afterwards, uh, the Olympic Committee obviously asked for an apology from Smith and Carlos, and they said no. And they also asked for Peter Norman to disavow what happened. And Peter Norman said, no, I'm not going to do it because Australia has been uh, abusing Aboriginal peoples in our country forever. So he's like, I, I stand with what Smith and Carlos did. And so uh, he was essentially blackballed by the Australian track authorities, uh, Peter Norman, just like uh, Smith and Carlos, you know, caught hell in America and their athletic careers suffered. And I bring up Peter Norman a lot, uh, particularly with students that I talk with, because it's, it's majority white audiences I talk with. Um, still got a lot of black kids and Hispanic kids, but it's still majority white. And I bring up Peter Norman to try to show them that this work of combating racism uh, and injustice isn't just the work of the black athlete or, if you're in Australia, of Aboriginal people. Uh, white people got to go along for the ride, too. Like, this stuff isn't going to change unless white people also change and fight against what's happening. Uh, so that's why I bring up Norman so much with people. It's like, you know, don't forget that, that white dude on the podium. Don't, don't put him front and center. He's not the most important person in that story, but he's an important figure in that well, story. And, 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 he and, he, and he refused to back down. And as a practical consideration, you know, being pragmatic, you want to mention him as importantly as well because that will encourage other people to go in that same direction. So even though it is not the same, the same gesture as, as they did, it is still an important part of moving this forward. Yeah, and, he, and he, it also he knew it wasn't his place. Like, he oh yeah, stand up there with a black, like he's not going to go up there with a black raised fist. Like that's that's not his protest to make. But he stood there alongside those guys. And um, again, like I said, when they asked Norman to disavow it, Norman said, "No, I agree with what they did, and he, he paid hell for it." So uh, he he was willing to pay a cost in support of these black athletes doing their thing, who also paid a cost for what they did. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the stumbling blocks, you know, to bring up MLK again. You know, he talked about the white moderate, uh, you know, how they, they prefer comfort over justice. Uh, Peter Norman was someone who exemplified a white person who was willing to be uncomfortable in the pursuit of getting justice. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's why I bring him up. For white people to know. Yeah, for the sake of completeness, it was the 200 meter and the 68 Olympics. Yeah, th- th- thank you. Um, Thank you for sparing me from the uh, the angry track athletes who might listen to this uh, show. Uh, but so that's important in '68, uh, the Olympic, and also <laughs> just in wider uh, problems. The '68 Olympics in Mexico City were one of the most brutal. Like the government of Mexico brutalized student protesters all all that year. So there, there's a whole lot going on in '68 Olympics that people should read up on. Uh, but I would say, you know, taking things broadly now, you know, by, by the mid-1970s, you start to see an ebbing of athlete protests. And I think part of that was just the wider, the, the wider scope of American society. I, th- I think the country had kind of gotten tired of, uh, like, just physically exhausted and mentally exhausted with the, with the previous two decades of uh, a push for civil rights and women's rights and anti-war movement. 
Uh, and so you start to see more of a, a, a calming effort come in or a calming mood come in. Not necessarily peaceful, but people just like, we just, we just need to take a break. And coincidentally, the NBA players had finally won free agency from the owners in 1976. Yes. And so the NBA players themselves had less to fight for personally in terms of their, their own money, their own wealth. And he had all these civil rights bills that got passed. So they're able to go out and buy a home where they want. Uh, again, it's not going to be treated fairly, not by any means, but things had improved over the previous two decades. And so when you start to get into the, like the late 70s and then it really into the 1980s, that's when you start having a, a dramatic fall-off in athlete uh, protests in the NBA, uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, and then it continues into the 90s. And this is where this is the area where I, this is where I admit that I have less expertise, uh, you know, to stay true to what we talked about earlier. Uh, I don't know as much about the 90s uh, kind of athletic protest movement, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that America was in the 80s and the 90s was really more in the mood of basically let, letting capitalism uh, do, do, do the work uh, of social justice, so, so to speak. Like, like if there's a problem, there's nothing that capitalism can't fix. There's nothing that throwing money at the problem can't fix. Yeah. Um, uh, this actually, go, actually, now I think about it, it goes back to Richard Nixon. Uh, he had an idea of um, black capitalism. And it, it's not just Richard Nixon, but he ran on this idea of getting black folks by having black capitalism, where he said that, you know, you can enjoy your civil rights even more if you do capitalist investments in your community. So don't look for, you know, quote-unquote government handouts use capitalism as a way to further uh, the black community. And there's, there's certainly a truth in that. Like, you want to have black-owned businesses serving, you know, black people, uh, or just have black businesses in general serving anybody. But by the 1990s, I think that idea had really come to fruition with uh, Michael Jordan, where he became, like, you know, the, the, the face and the spokesperson of all these companies and, uh, and uh, the NBA, and he had this really just non-offensive image. And it's just like, well, if you want to succeed as a black person, like, there's Michael Jordan. You know, he's Looks nice. He's cl he's clean. You know, gambling aside, uh, even though it wasn't illegal, but still, it's like, hey, whatever. You know, everybody has a fault. So, but like Michael Jordan, besides the gambling, he's clean. He's nice. Great smile. Uh, pitch man, spokesperson, doesn't dip his toes in anything controversial. He's just here to sell Hanes underwear, McDonald's, Nike shoes. Uh, that doesn't there any controversy uh, when it relates to social problems in the United States. And so that kind of subsumed any athletes who would uh, stir up uh, protests in the NBA in particular. That's an interesting point. Uh, I, think, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, uh, and also it comes on the heels of the United States, you know, you know, winning the Cold War. So we were the only country that – we were the only superpower in the world. So it was like, what, what is there to complain about? If it's like it's 1993, what is there to complain about in the United States? Like we beat the Soviet Union. We won the first Gulf War uh, without a problem. Uh, the country was, you know – benefiting economically uh, there was there was a slight little dip into a recession but we were coming out of that employment was doing really well uh compared especially compared to the 80s and the 70s and so by like 2000 it's just like you know again what is there to protest of course there's always problems but uh you know there's, there's nothing that rises to the level of needing to have protests by an athlete uh you know taking a knee or whatever equivalent act there is and quite honestly, the, the only two players I could think of in the NBA at this point who had raised any sort of fuss were Craig Hodges and uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Yes. Um, and no offense to either one of them, but they were not star players of the NBA. So I, I think that speaks to the state of athletic protest at that point. The star athletes weren't looking to protest anything, and the guys that were looking to protest were of a much lower tier uh, than, say, Michael Jordan or Patrick Ewing. 
uh, or whatever, John Stockton. Uh, and of course, it's not to say that those guys don't have beliefs about the world and that they didn't do good work in the world. It's just that they weren't putting that at the forefront of what they were yeah, doing. They handled, it, to, they handled it differently. Yeah, better yeah compared to, say, Oscar Robertson or Bill Russell in, a, in an earlier era. Um, and then I think when you get into the 2000s, you, more, you have a more uh, humanitarian is it's less a if if this makes sense you have a more human humanitarian bent on things and less of a political bent on it. Uh, like I, I think of guys like Dikembe Mutombo and um, even Hakeem Olajuwon uh, did some work. Uh, but you know they they did stuff that was humanitarian, just like we're, we're relieving uh, medical problems or we're, we're trying to fight just poverty at large. Now we're not addressing specific uh, political problems or violence uh, that's going on. Whereas by 2010, you start to get this esca- this re-escalation, I think a, re- a return, so to speak, back to the 1960s mentality. Uh, and of course, by you know 2015, it's completely out there. You have the, I guess, the revival of the, the classical access uh, that we now see completely out, out in full force here in 2020. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think to an extent also that the the change of information flows has has facilitated that, but also a change in circumstances. I mean, this is there, yep. we, it, and and it all it all does feed together. And I I for one, you know, am am pleased that athletes are feeling comfortable that and whether you know there are many cases where you can make an argument that it will cost them financially that they're willing to. To to make that to make that jump for things that they for things that they believe in, and I fully expect that that will that that will continue because and, and now there it's it's more it's more kind of the the levels of communication could, the lines of communication are more direct, and I think that allows the athletes who want to engage on it could be an issue big or small to to do so on their own terms and. While there will be times that they misstep, to be sure, just like anybody else, we've seen plenty of those over the last week as well. That they yes, we that, that they can that they can do that and help help foster the conversation in whatever ways they see fit. Yeah, yeah. And actually, now I think about it, just the, the perils of speaking off the top of your head. Um, historians hate doing this, uh, but I want to uh, add onto this uh, back into the nineties, uh, the place of Magic Johnson as well. Yes, uh, he, I think he also shows. Um, he shows the again the, the state of the of the American mind during the '90s and even going into the 2000s. Um, again, Magic, great smile. Let's you know, no problems with Magic. Uh, he's he's a good person, which he is. Uh, has his faults, but is a good person. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but when he uh, when he but when he got HIV, like that was an important cultural moment, but it wasn't necessarily an important political moment in the United States uh, because. A lot of people in the 80s had done all, had already done all the heavy political work to finally get the U.S. government to recognize that HIV was a problem, that it needed to get you know su- sufficient attention financially uh, and um, research-wise toward trying to solve that issue, uh, but still can't discount Magic's place culturally. Uh, when he got HIV, you know, he was very public about it and. Uh, put it, put his face on it, and really yes. helps to, to uh, humanize it and, and make a lot of people just you know back off some of the stereotypes uh, that they had, had uh, assigned to that disease. It uh, also goes with Arthur Ashe, a uh, tennis player, who also he unfortunately died of it, uh, but he also helped to put a face on HIV. Uh, but but then Magic also later in the nineties, uh, he he also turned to the what I call the black capitalism earlier, uh, where you know he started Magic Johnson Theaters and um, he, he does a lot of business investments. And it's not that that's a bad way to you know exercise your 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 uh, your clout, but I think that that shows 
how people were thinking about how they should exercise their clout back in the 90s. It's just let the money do the talking. We're going to do maybe economic help. And culturally, we'll just show ourselves as, you know, quote unquote, good people. And that that that'd be enough. Uh, we're not going to explicitly talk about political problems in America. Uh, whereas, like I mentioned, now we are here. We are, you know, 20, 25 years later. And uh, these athletes are very much going about it uh, politically. And um, LeBron James is, the, I guess, the best example of someone who's combining both of them, where he's doing you know, both the economic and the political uh, dis- discussions. And, uh, and also educational. Educational one is also a big factor that I've missed out on. Uh, to bring up Wes Unseld, uh, who passed away recently, uh, he, he founded the school back in 1978. So the guys have been finding ways to impact their communities and uh, influence politics in American society in a number of ways. Uh, it's varied and ebbed over time, and certain forms have taken precedence over older ones at certain moments. Uh, but it, it's always been there. But I think the way it's expressed really does uh, showcase uh, the status of the of the black athlete in the American society in the NBA at a particular moment. It absolutely does. And I know there are so many other kind of nooks and crannies within this conversation yeah. that, are, that are worth delving into. And there, there are great places that, that, that people can do so, but we, we are unfortunately time limited. So I will, I will thank you immensely for your time and your perspective on, on all of this. And I'm, I am sure I'll try to talk to you soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks again so much to Curtis Harris for taking the time to come on. You can read his newsletter, which is fantastic, prohoopshistory.substack.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at prohoopshistory, P-R-O-H-O-O-P-S-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. And that will have a link you can check there to uh, his other other Twitter account, should you be interested in Curtis's perspective there, and both of which are, are fantastic follows in my personal opinion. And... I really loved having Curtis on. He was the the first person I thought of when I wanted to do this episode to to get the balance of a good perspective but also immense knowledge. And and that I wanted to learn and I learned a lot from this podcast and that was something that I thought was exceedingly important if I wanted to do this and I hope that I hope that it lived up to what I wanted it to be um and did a lot of listening, which I think is an extremely important thing for a lot of us to be doing right now and I try not to you know to tell other uh, to tell other people what to do. I save that for what I for what general managers should do and things like that. But there if there if you're feeling there are a lot of different ways that people could be feeling right now and the biggest the biggest things that I've been thinking about the last few days are doing a lot of listening um, really just getting perspectives and reading and listening in that more holistic sense and also advocating making your voice heard for the changes that you want to see in this world and that doesn't have to necessarily relate to policing or any any number of other cultural touchstones that are going on right now we all who live in the United States and hopefully if you live in other countries have a have an ability to change the world for the better to change our country to change our city our state whatever jurisdiction you want to focus on and i i will i will tell you that focusing locally does really make a big difference i've as somebody who's who's done work on on local levels and on on national levels i think that there's more that you can do especially in certain spaces in those smaller jurisdictions and you can speak directly with the people who are supposed to represent you and i think that's extremely important but doing a lot of listening if there are causes that you believe in supporting those not only with your with your money but also with your 
energy and with your voice. Those can be extremely important as well. Whatever whatever that is, um, I, I strongly encourage you to do that. And if you want to support this show, a very different thing than supporting some of the other, other policy changes, of course, that we discussed, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in podcast player of your choosing. You can spread word, word of mouth, this specific episode, the show in general, whatever you want to do. And also subscribing, downloading every episode. Those are extremely important because the show comes out different times every week and because you can't really get into a habit for it. So if you if you subscribe, then it'll just pop into your player, whatever player that is, whenever you do, if that's Spotify, if that's Apple Music, wherever it is. It's, it's much appreciated for us and gets you in the habit. But the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is Bet Online. Use that Podcast One promo code for your sign-up bonus. And as you heard me say earlier in the show, you can listen to the conversation between uh, Chael Sonnen and Dave Mason about UFC 250, which is coming up this weekend. Uh, that will be after this outro. Uh, you can listen to that there. So um, I encourage you to do so, especially if you are interested in that. And again, the Podcast One promo code for Bet Online. My instinct is that Real GM Radio will be quote-unquote more back to normal next week. I can't make that guarantee. One of the beautiful things about the show and something I'm so thankful to Real GM Four is the the ability to explore the studio space, as it were, with things that, and, and I f- firmly feel that I did that here, um, and I'm I'm thankful all the time for the support that they have given me uh, to try to, to try to make this the best show that I think it can be, and uh, I I hope that this fits into that well. That is my sincere hope. Uh, I, there's so many things, Curtis and I talked about this a little bit, there's so many things that can be weighing on, on people right now, whether it's, whether it's health and finances or the, the state of policing or race relations or every, the imbalance of power in our country. And I can't fix all those problems. You can't, but we can, I think that everybody doing, doing something to try to make things better for themselves, the people around them and the world in general will help. And then I, I have to believe that that's that's me being optimistic, and um, so I, I hope that whatever it is that moves you, that you do your part. If that's on an individual level, you know, doing something nice for for somebody in your life, or if that's advocating for for change or donating money, whatever that is for you, make sure to take the time to to do that in this. And and if there are days that it feels like things get get past me, and things days that they, that I feel like I have way too much time, and so trying to devote some every day to making sure that I am informed and engaged and that I can feel comfortable with that. That's something that's helping me and hopefully you feel the same way with that. So that is more than enough for me. You can, uh, you'll probably get my thoughts on what's going on in the NBA other places before you get them here. Dunked on Nate and I will be back in the next couple of days. We're actually doing a Patreon mailbag as well. That should come out on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and then writing at the athletic, of course, and just so many other irons in the fire. So thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day all right guys now i am joined by possibly the longest reigning guest that this program has ever had dave mason from bet online dave let me throw you in a weird direction that i wasn't planning on going but something just popped in my head and while i have you here i know i'm not telling our fans that bet online is taking this action but just for fun if if you had to venture does Mike Tyson return to competition yes or no what do you think does Mike Tyson box again Oh boy! It, it, you know we 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 actually had some odds up on that. Um, so so we are taking bets on 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 Tyson. You know Tito Ortiz, your old pal, was was chirping. So we put some odds up on that on a on a boxing match. We have I think Tyson at minus five hundred. 
I, you know, normally I would say no, but in the current state of things with all these charity things going on, you know, the past week when we saw the, uh, that golf event that was so good and raised so much money, um, and we got awesome action on it with Nicholson, Tiger, uh, Brady, and, and, and Manning going at it. So with, with all the charities, you, you throw that into it, I wouldn't be shocked. If it wasn't for this COVID stuff, I'd say hell no. But with all this charity stuff and, and, and all sorts of creative content getting out there and, and people just hungry for content, I know Bare Knuckle wants to bring him on for a fight for 20. They're opening 20 million or something, which is absolutely nuts. So normally I'd say no, but with all this COVID stuff, I, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I saw some pictures of him. Holy hell, he, he's jacked, man. He, he's in great shape. And of course, of course, everybody saw him hitting that bag a few weeks ago. And my Lord, I, I felt sorry for that bag. He, he, he looked as strong and as powerful as ever. So, you know, if he does come back, I'm sure it's going to be you know, some kind of special, you know, uh, special rules and everything. I don't think it'll be an all-out brawl. I, I don't know. Of course, bare knuckles, if he fights there, then there are no special rules. They're not even gloves. So I, I would like to see it. What the hell? And, and, and you know, from, from booking something like that, that the, the action would be off the charts. I was never in the industry when he was fighting. That was before my time in the industry. So that's one thing I, I always would have liked to see, all, all that Tyson money coming in. Because whenever he fought, it was an event. And sometimes maybe it's not the best fight or the best game that gets all the action, but the events that's on news, that's on Sports Center. 24-7 that everybody's talking about, i.e. Mayweather versus McGregor. Those are the ones that Super Bowls that happen in August that the sports books just love because it's like all of a sudden, the third week of August, all these people are piling back in when they weren't the, the, the year prior. So if Tyson comes back in any any kind of competi- competitive fight, oh my God, I, I can't imagine the actual come in. So I'm rooting for it, man. And, you know, I'm of that same school of thought as so many people are saying, well, you know, he's 53, don't do it in these bad things. But I think you brought up an interesting point, which is, well, wait a second. What if we do manipulate the rules? What if all of a sudden it's a two-minute round and there's a 90-second rest just by example? Oh, and by the way, it's only scheduled for three or four rounds. I think that greatly does change the potential uh, embarrassment factor, if you will, the potential uh, injury factor, if you will. And then what if we throw him in there with somebody from his era. I mean, coincidentally, Vander is now coming back. Coincidentally, yeah. uh, Briggs uh, would like to fight again, who's also, you know, uh, just north of 50 years old. I think I'm with you. I think there's something special there. Even those videos that Mike's putting out, 8 and 10 and 11-second clips of him shadow boxing or hitting mitts or, to your point, hitting the bag. I love that stuff. Those stuff's 11 seconds. I wish it was 11 minutes. I, if Mike Tyson's doing something, I'm compelled to watch. 100%. Like I said, it's an event. I just remember watching those fights when I was a young and, you know, I think it's back in high school and it, when he was on top of the world. And even back then, you know, we, all me and all my buddies would go over to somebody's house who had HBO, I think it was on back then. <laughs> we watched the fights and I don't remember anything else that we really gathered for back then. And that was way back one in the 80s. So absolutely. I would, I would love to be on this side of the counter for a Mike Tyson fight, even if it did have special rules because... The, the, the hype would be just off the charts, which I which I love the events. All right, so speaking of ferocious fighters, let me fast forward you next week. Pay-per-view, only on ESPN+, Plus, world champion, and uh, the, the without question, greatest female fighter of all time. Well, I'm talking about Amanda Nunes. She's putting the strap up 
against Felicia Spencer. Felicia Spencer, I would argue for you, had her greatest performance even in defeat, and that was against mm -hmm. Chris Cyborg, where I think she opened everybody's eyes and shocked us to not only her skills, but her heart and her durability. Noons versus Spencer. I'm a week early on this, but I don't get to talk to you that often, Dave. How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, you said it. She's the GOAT. Amanda's just incredible. I mean, uh, you know, took out Ronda, took out Cyborg, two KOs right there of, of two of the other people, that, the women that would be mentioned in the uh, GOAT conversation or debate, which I don't think it's any close to a debate anymore. It's Amanda all the way. But, yeah, Spencer, I mean, I, I, I watched that Cyborg fight, and I was like, I was like, oh my God, what's this? What's this lady gonna? That that's a looks can be deceiving thing. And she went in there, and you know, Cyborg's all jacked, and and then Spencer just looked like I, I don't know. You took her out of a PTA meeting or something, and and <laughs> holy, holy hell, man! Did she did she battle? Did she she impressed the hell out of me, man? I I mean, I, I, she might might not be the most skilled fighter out there, men or women, but she, she, I, I don't know if there are many. People, men or women, with a bigger heart than she had. Holy mackerel! Did she open my eyes in that fight? But uh, Nunes will just be too much, and I, and I think. I mean, if, if Spencer beat, beats Amanda, that will be the ultimate Rocky story right there. Uh, but you know, Nunes, she's just on another level with her striking, ground game, ground and pound, everything. Uh, I, I don't see. I mean, the odds are reflective. Amanda's minus five fifty favorite. To take back on Spencer's plus 420, even to, despite the uh, high odds the public is on Nunes, which is which is which is kind of um, you know the public in fights usually bet that dog, and you know we still have a week and a half of action yet to come in, so that that could change, and by fight night we could we could need Amanda, but as of now. The better's on Amanda, which which tells me something too that people aren't really giving Felicia. What I do know is every parlay will be keyed on Amanda, along with O'Malley. Those got, those those two will be keyed on like every other parlay that weekend. Yeah, oh, I fully agree. Look, there's always something special when Sean O'Malley is present. I mean, it's, it's just a reality. <laughs> he brings something. You talk, Simon Cowell likes to talk about the it factor. Sean O'Malley yep. has the it factor. He sure does. Oh man, I mean this. His look, uh, his interviews, but he backs it up in the ring. Of course, you know, he's not that tested yet. You know, we're, he's going to have a good test next weekend, which is great, fighting Eddie, a cagey old veteran like Eddie Wyland. Um, but, but man, that O'Malley, he, he just is so dynamic and striking. Just one of those guys, you, he, he's going to sell a lot of tickets, man. Why this kid over his career? And how, how, big did he, how big did he look in his last fight? That's the thing. You know, he, he just looked so much more muscular during that time off when he, when he fought that last fight. He, he looked huge in that last fight. I, I couldn't be, believe he was made weight at that weight class, but he made it easy, and he, and he looked great. He just put on a lot of muscle, and he was ready to go. And he, he did his thing, and next weekend, I can't wait. I mean, I, I think that's the fight I'm looking forward to most on that card. He against Wyland, so I, I, I'm really looking forward to that, pal. I fully agree with you. All right, Dave, thank you for your time. You got anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, lots, but, you know, I know you're quick on time, but come on over to betonline.ag and bet the fights and uh, all sorts of sign-up bonuses. Get your free plays and, and bet on the fights with house money at betonline.ag. Boom. Love it. Thanks, Dave. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care.